Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth. I believe we're eight or nine, maybe. And we're in the middle of a chapter on its spiritual growth, its stages. <coughs> to sum up by the apostles, young men, because you are strong. We understand that through the means of grace, by increased spiritual knowledge, by appropriating the strength which is in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 2.1, through exercising the graces of the new man, by improving, profiting from, the varied experiences through which they have passed, and by assist the assisting operations of the Holy Spirit, they have developed from babes into higher spiritual stature, and were the better qualified to use their spiritual muscles. <coughs> it is written, this is Isaiah 40, 31, They that wait on the Lord, which refers not so much to an act as it is descriptive of an attitude found in all the regenerate who are in a healthy condition, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There is such a thing as overcoming spiritual weakness or babyhood. But not of continual dependence on the Lord. There is such an experience as going from strength to strength. Psalm 84.7 <clears throat> Though without Christ I could do nothing. John 15.5 Yet through him, strengthening me, I can do all things. Philippians 4.13 And the word of God abideth in you. We regard that clause as connecting first with the preceding one as casting light upon and furnishing a partial explanation of why these young men were strong, as revealing to us one of the principal sources and means of their spiritual strength. And at the same time, it also serves to define the nature of the strength mentioned, namely, as inherent grace as something within themselves. It is by the pure milk of the word that the babe in Christ grows, 1 Peter 2, 2. And it is by that word abiding in him that he becomes strong. And the faculties or graces of the new man are kept healthy and vigorous. But second, we regard that clause as having an intimate bearing on the one that follows, seeing that it ends as well as begins with the word and. For it is by means of the word of God abiding in them that these young men had been enabled to overcome the wicked one. By the word of thy lips have I kept, have I kept from the paths of the destroyer. Psalm 17.4 And you have overcome the wicked one. Note, First, this is not an exhortation or intimation of duty. It is not, ye ought to, but ye have. Second, this is not predicated as a rare experience, particular to some exceptionally exalted saint, but is postulated in the whole of this company. Ye have. Third, <coughs> it is not described either as a present process or a future attainment, but as an accomplished thing. Not ye are overcoming, or will do so, but ye have overcome the wicked one. Little wonder that Goodwin said on this point, quote, There is a second and greater difficulty beyond defining the, the ye are strong. Namely, how in what respect they are said more eminently, that is, than the babes, to have overcome Satan. For are they not in the conflicts apt to be overcome and to be yielded to corrupt affections? And how far they may be overcome by those, it is not to be determined by man. Words and brackets are, in instance, our own additions. You have overcome the wicked one. Whatever difficulty you may experience in understanding the meaning of those words, there is surely no occasion for us needlessly to add to the difficulty. We must be very careful with this verse, as with all others, not to read into it what is not there. It does not say you have overcome the flesh, that is, the young men have obtained victory over their inward corruptions. It is most significant 
fact, it is the most significant fact, the one which should exert great influence on our thinking at this point, that while this epistle speaks of overcoming the wicked one and overcoming the world, 5.4, it does not speak of believers overcoming their lusts. It is true we are bidden to mortify our members which are upon the earth, Colossians 3.5, and that in varying degrees all the regenerate do so. <clears throat> it is also true that the grace of God effectually teaches its recipients to deny ungodliness and worldly lesson to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world, Titus 2.12. But Scripture nowhere affirms that any saint overcome, overcame the flesh. And the flesh is our sinful nature that we inherit from Adam. <clears throat> in the Word of God, as intimated above, we believe that the preceding clause and the word of God abideth in you, throws light upon those words which have presented such a diff difficulty unto so many. And you have overcome the wicked one, first, because they declare unto us the principal means by which the enemy is overcome, namely the word of God, which is especially designated the sword of the Spirit, the one offensive weapon which is to be used against the wicked. Ephesians 6, 16 and 17. Supreme demonstration of that was given by our Lord Jesus when he was attacked by the devil. He then gave proof that the word dwelt richly in him, that the word of God abode in his own affections and thoughts and was the regulator of his ways. To each of Satan's temptations, he replied, it is written. He did not parley with the enemy. He did not reason or argue with him. He took a stand on the authoritative and all-sufficient word of God and refused to turn aside therefrom. And thereby, he overcame him. And the Christ has both left us his example that we should follow his steps and given us such encouragement as ensues success. But second, it seems to us that the clause and the word of God abideth in you not only signifies the means to be used, but also, and perhaps chiefly, intimates the very nature of wherein the young man had overcome the wicked one. In other words, the very fact that it could be said that the word of God abideth in you was itself the grand proof of their victory over the great adversary. In his parable of the sower, our Lord taught that the seed sown in the, is, was the word, and that which fell by the wayside, the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. In his interpretation, Christ explained that to signify Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word which is sown in their hearts. Mark 4.15 That shows plainly that the primary and principal aim of the devil is to prevent the word of God finding a permanent abode in the human heart. And, in the case of the vast majority of our fellows, he is permitted to succeed. To a very large percentage of professing Christians, the Lord says, as he did to the Jews, who had, not much, who had much head knowledge of the scriptures, you have not the word of God abiding in you, John 5.38. We are living in a day of such darkness that this generation is ignorant of his devices, 2 Corinthians 2.11. Many of God's own people seek to blame Satan for what originates within themselves. Note well the following statements. From within, out of the heart of man, not, not from the devil, Proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, all these evils come from within. Mark seven twenty one twenty three. Now the works of the flesh, not of the devil, are manifest, which are these adultery, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Galatians five nineteen to twenty one. Every man is tempted when he is when he is not assailed by the evil one, but drawn away by his own lusts. James one fourteen. But pride works. And we do not wish to think that we are so evil and violent, so we attempt to escape the onus of, by attributing to Satan what we ourselves are responsible for. <clears throat> there is no need for Satan to tempt men to do such things as these passages mention. He works far more subtly and insidiously than that. 
If we go back to Genesis 3, where we have the earliest mention of Satan and the first mention of anything in the scriptures invariably supplies the key to the subsequent references. We are shown the realm in which he works and the central object of his attack. That realm is the religious, and that object is the word of God. His opening words to Eve were, Yea, hath God said, calling into question, Thus saith the Lord. As he seeks night and day to prevent God's word entering the human heart, so he labors incessantly to remove it when it has entered. One of his favorite tactics is to inject doubts into the minds of spiritual babes to get them to question the inspiration and the veracity of the scriptures. Under the imposed terms of modern thought, scholarship, the discoveries of science, he seeks to sap the foundation of faith. Where that fails, appeal is made to the conflicting views of the sects and denominations who discredit the inerrancy of the word. Where that fails, recourse is made to human tradition in order to set aside the oracles of God. It is far too little to realize that every attack which is made upon the word of God, every denial of its verbal inspiration and divine authority, every repudiation of its sufficiency as being our alone rule of faith and practice, every corruption of its doctrines, and every perversion of the ordinances and worship of the triune God are from the devil. Many of the babes in Christ are severely shaken by those attacks and are tossed to and fro by various winds of erroneous doctrine. Nevertheless, divine grace preserves them. And as they grow in grace and knowledge, as they become more cautious of whom they hear and what they read, as they become established in the truth, they triumph over the enemy. <clears throat> he fails to destroy their faith in the scriptures, to lead them away by damnable heresies, to catch them away, to catch away the seed sown in their hearts, and therefore the word of God abiding in them is sure proof that they have overcome the wicked one. As the same apostle goes on to say in the fourth chapter, this is 4, 1 and 4, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then he added, you're, God, you're of God, little children, the term of endearment, and have overcome. That's excellent stuff. That, that is so true. Satan in the garden, first thing he did, attacked the word of God. And before Christ in the temptation to try to pervert the word of God, to twist it. And then Roman number three. <clears throat> in Ephesians 4.13, there is a statute of Christ spoken, namely, that of a perfect man. There is a statue of Christ spoken of, namely, that of the perfect man, <clears throat> and in the measure of the fullness of Christ. It would lead us far too far away from the present aspect of our subject, which is a spiritual growth of individual Christians, to enter into a full analysis and discussion of the passage in which this verse occurs. 4.11-16. to 16. Suffice to point out that it treats of the corporate growth of the church and its ultimate perfection. Verses 11, 12 state the appointment of the Christian ministry. Verse 13 announces its goal, while verses 14 to 16 make known the process by which that goal is reached. There is a unity of the faith among believers now as to its first principles, as truly as there is a saving knowledge of the Son of God possessed by them in this life, by which this passage contemplates is a con consummation of the same in the body corporate, when there will be perfect unity of faith, as there will be perfect knowledge and perfect holiness. Hebrews 12.23 For all the saints will then be fully conformed into the image of Christ. When the perfect man is openly revealed, it will consist of the glorified head and a glorified body. He's talking about the perfection of the saints at the resurrection. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ of that which is the whole church is predestined, and the accomplishment thereof will be seen at the second advent of our Lord, 
when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and admired in all them that believe. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 But during this present life, there are different stages of spiritual development reached by Christians, different forms in the school of Christ to which they belong, different measures of progress made by them. Broadly speaking, there are three degrees of the stature of Christ reached by believers in this life, though the highest of them falls very far short of that which shall pertain to them in the life to come. Those three degrees are most clearly made, specified in 1 John 2, 12-14, where the apostle grades the members of God's family into the babes, the young men, and the fathers. We have sought to describe the principal features of the first and second, and now we shall are to consider what is most characteristic of and preeminent in the third class, the fathers. You're going to have to edit that. Mark the time, Justin. All right. Note carefully. Uh, okay. And now we are to consider what is most more characteristic of and preeminent in the third place, the third class, the fathers. Note carefully how we worded the closing part of the last sentence. It is not that which is particular to, but rather that which is distinctive of the third class. This needs to be emphasized, or at least plainly stated in order to prevent readers from drawing a wrong conclusion. What is predicated of each separate class is also common to the whole, though not to the same degree. In their measure, the babes overcame the wicked one and have a real and saving knowledge of him. That is from the beginning. Yet they do not overcome in the same extent as the young men, nor know Christ so well or extensively as do the fathers. In like manner, the fathers rejoice in the knowledge of sins forgiven and know the father even better than they did in the days of their spiritual infancy. So too, they are, not only as, they are not only as strong, but they are in time of their spiritual youth to the word of God abiding in them. But they have progressed from strength to strength. Psalm 84, 7. For the word of God now dwells in them richly. Colossians 3, 16. Let's remind the reader once more that in 1 John 2, 12-14, believers are not graded according to their natural ages, nor even according to the length of time they have become, been Christians, but according to the spiritual growth and progress they have made in the Christian life. Some of God's elect are converted very late in life, are left in this world for but a, but a very short season at most. And though they give clear evidence of a work of grace wrought in them, and bring forth fruit to the glory of God, yet they attain not to the spiritual vigor of young men, and still less to their spiritual intelligence and maturity of the fathers. On the other hand, there are those who are regenerated in their youth, and some of them make ready the constant progress, adorning the doctrine they profess and becoming useful to their fellow Christians. While others, after a promising beginning, backslide and are a grief to their brethren. It is with individual Christians as with corporate companies of them. Of the saints at Rome, Paul could say, Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. 1.8. While to the Galatians, he complained, You did run well. Who did hinder you? 5.7. To the Thessalonians, he could say, Your faith is growing exceedingly. Your faith groweth exceedingly. 2 Thessalonians 1.3. But of the Ephesians, it is recorded, Thou hast left thy first love. Revelation 2.4. While it be true that the longer a person has been a Christian, the more mature a spiritual character should be, the more growth and grace ought to mark him, the more intelligence he should have in the things of God. <coughs> Yet in many instances, this is far from being actualized in experience. In only too, too many, uh, in only too many, growth is stunted and progress is retarded. And some Christians of 20 years standing advance no further than the school of Christ. 
than those who entered into it a few months before. We have had a type of this in the contrast presented between Elihu and the aged men who took it upon themselves to cancel and criticize Job. I said, days shall speak and multitude of years shall teach wisdom. They were given the floor first only to exhibit their incompetency. But there is a spirit of men, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Great men are not always wise. Neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore, I said, hearken to me. Job 32, 7 and 9. You know, I, you know I, I've been uh, on a number of sessions, and you'll have these men who are, you know, 75, 80 years old, who've been in the, R they were in the RPCNA for 50 years. And uh, at meetings, we would take turns having like a devotional and stuff. These guys, you have guys that are 80 years old, don't know the scriptures at all. They don't know doctrine at all. They're elders, you know, they're nice guys. They come to church every week. They tithe. They're Christians. Uh, but they haven't really progressed much. <clears throat> and that's really true. If you don't make an effort, you can't depend on just a sermon each week or a couple sermons each week or a Sabbath class. You've got to study on your own. You've got to progress on your own. It's very important. <clears throat> the hoary head is only a crown of glory if it is to be found in the way of righteousness. Proverbs 16.31 Note well, my reader, that statement in the above passage, the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Gracious ability comes not from the passing of years, but by the teaching of the Holy Spirit. That gives us the divine aid, but there's also a human side, that of our responsibility, said David. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Psalm 119.100 Though study of and meditation on the word are indeed means of grace and of growth, yet spiritual understanding is obtained chiefly from personal submission to God. He will not get light on the mysteries of Scripture if we forsake the path of obedience. The young Christian who walks according to the divine precepts will have more spiritual discernment and better judgment than a much older one who is lax in his ways. John 7, 17. If any man do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. The world says experience is the best teacher, but it errs. The child who submits, who subjects himself wholly to the divine rule has an all-sufficient guide and is independent of experience. Understanding obtained through keeping God's precepts is infinitely better than knowledge secured by painful experience. 1 John 2.14 I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him, that is from the beginning. The one thing which is here predicated of mature Christians is their knowledge of Christ. For the references to the Son of God as incarnate. They have attained unto a fuller, higher, and more experimental knowledge of Christ. They are now more occupied with who he is than what he did for them. They delight in viewing him as the one who magnified the divine law and made it honorable, who satisfied all the requirements of divine holiness and justice, who glorified the Father. They have a deep insight into the mystery of his wondrous person. They have a clear understanding of his covenant engagements and of his prophetic, priestly, and kingly functions. They have a more intimate acquaintance with him through personal fellowship. They have a, fully experience of, a fuller experience of his love, his grace, his patience. They have obtained experimental verification of his teachings, the value of his commandments, and the certainty of his promises. The knowledge which is here ascribed unto the fathers is far more than a speculative and historical one with which the majority of professing Christians are content. There are several degrees of this mere, merely theoretical knowledge. 
with some of it nothing more than memorative, as the Jews are said to have had a form of knowledge, Romans 2.20, like a map of it in their brains, acquired by retaining in their minds what they have read or heard about divine things, while others it is an opinionative knowledge, so that they have not only a mental acquaintance with parts of the truth, but a conscious a conscience and judgment about these things, which causes them to regard themselves as orthodox. And yet wisdom enters not into their hearts, Proverbs one twenty. A few have yet a higher degree of this knowledge, which in a measure affects their hearts and leads to a reformation of life, so that they escape the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the, not their, of the Lord and Savior. Yet in its hold on their affections is too weak to withstand strong temptations, and hence they apostatize from the faith and return to their wallowing in the mire, 2 Peter 2.20 and 22. In contrast from nominal professors, every regenerated soul has a supernatural and spiritual knowledge of God, of Christ, and the gospel. And as he grows in grace, it increases. The kind of knowledge possessed by each of us may be determined by the effects it produces, whether it is only a bare, non-influential knowledge, or whether it is a spiritual and saving one is discovered by the fruits it bears. A divinely imparted one leads its professor to put his trust in the Lord, Psalm 9.10, to esteem Christ superlatively, Philippians 3, 8, and 9, to obey him, 1 John 2, 3, and 4. It is such as causes, as causes us to receive the truth, not only in the light of it, but in the love of it, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10. And thus it is an intimate, permanent, heart-affecting, and life-transforming knowledge. It is what the Apostle terms the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And that is one which causes its possessor to count all other things but dung, and moves him to pant after a yet fuller acquaintance with Christ, a more unbroken communion with him, and a more complete conformity unto his image. The knowledge of Christ with which the fathers are blessed is such as fills their souls with a holy awe, astonishment, and admiration. They know him through the revelation of the gospel as the one who was set up from the be- everlasting from the beginning, who was daily with the father's delight, daily the father's delight, Proverbs eight twenty three and thirty. Thus they know him as the one who took into union with his divine person the holy humanity. They know him as the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.16, as the one who is fully told out by the Father. They are led into a knowledge of his divine majesty, his headship of the church, as a mediator of union and communion, which floods their hearts with delight. They know him as their Lord, their Redeemer, their hope, their all in all. He is the grand subject, the object of their contemplations, so that they are more and more absorbed in him, with him, Such knowledge finds expression in speaking well of him to fellow saints, of enduring to please him in all things, by diligently following the example he has left us. It must not be concluded from 1 John 2, 13 and 14 that this deeper and fuller knowledge of the person, offices, and work of Christ is the only distinguishing mark which which eminently characterizes the fathers. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14 shows otherwise. They teach others, both by example and precept, giving counsel and admonition, encouragements and comfort to their younger brethren. In the same passage, they are termed them that are of a full age. And the marks of such are described as those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, and being capacitated to masticate strong meat, which according to the scope of the epistles is reference to the official glories of Christ, particularly his priestly. While those who cannot digest such food, who find neither savor nor nourishment therein, are termed babes who can relish uh, not but milk, that is, the simpler and more elementary aspects of the gospel. Just as the natural infant possesses the same faculties as the adult, 
but has not learned to employ them. So the babe in Christ has all the senses and spiritual graces of the fathers, but has not learned to use them to the same advantage. As the natural infant is incapable of distinguishing between wholesome and injurious food, so the spiritual infant has not the ability to form a correct judgment and distinguish between preachers who minister only to the letters of the word and those who are enabled to open it up spiritually. It is by reason of use that the spiritual senses are developed, and the muscles of the athlete or the fingers of the craftsman become fit or skillful through constant exercise, so the spiritual graces of the new man are developed by regularly calling them into play. It is by using the light we have, by practicing what we already know, which fits the soul for further disclosures of the truth and for closer communion with Christ, which the better enables us to discern both good and evil. Thus, a fuller mark of the fathers is wisdom, sound judgment, keen discernment. The old Christian has more solid, judicious, and connected views of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glories of his redeeming love. Hence, his hope is more established, his dependence more simple, his peace and strength more abiding and uniform than is the case of the young convert. Though his sensible feelings may not be so warm as they, as when he was in the state of A, spiritual infancy, his judgment is more solid, his mind more fixed, his thoughts more habitually exercised upon the things within the veil. His great business is to behold the glory of God in Christ, and by beholding he is changed into the same image and brings forth in the imminent and uniform manner the fruits of righteousness. Of righteousness. His contemplations are not bare speculations, but have a real influence and enable him to exemplify the Christian character <coughs> to more advantage and more consistently than can in the state of present in the present state of things be expected from the babes of young men. And by the way, that that paragraph was a quote from John Newton, Grace in the Full Ear. The fathers are such as are more eminently employed in the exercises of godliness. For having proved for themselves that obedience to God is true liberty, their practice of piety is not performed only from a sense of duty, but with joy. They more wisely manage the affairs of the life, for they have a greater measure of spiritual prudence and circumspection. They discharge their duties with increased diligence and care, knowing that God esteems quality rather than quantity. The heart engaged therein rather than the length or measure of the performance. They are more weaned from the delights of sense, for their assurance is now based upon knowledge rather than feelings. They are more conscience, conscious than they had formerly been uh, were aware of the uh, frailty and ignorance, and therefore lean harder on the everlasting arms and more frequent seek wisdom from above. They are more submissive under the varying dispensation of, dispensations of providence, for the trying of their faith has wrought patience, James 1.3. And therefore they are more content to, to meekly and trustfully leave themselves and their affairs in the hands of him that doeth all things well. The fathers are such <coughs> as have been greatly favored with light from the Spirit by his gracious opening of their understandings to perceive and their hearts to receive the teachings of God's holy writ. And they have learned that they can no more enter into the spiritual meaning of any verse in, in the word without the Spirit's assistance than create a world and therefore their daily prayer is, Open thou mine eyes, and I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Through deep acquaintance with God, their characters are more mellowed, and their lives are more faithful to his praise. Not necessarily in outward activities, but by the exercise of their, gra of the gra their graces, thanksgiving, and adoration. Having had made to them many discoveries of the glories of Christ, received innumerable proofs of his forbearance, been partakers of countless love tokens from him. Their testimony is, Whom have I in heaven but thee? 
and there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee. Psalm 73.25 Their minds are largely taken up with and exercised upon the wondrous perfections of Christ, both personal and official. <coughs> Titus 2, 1 and 2 But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. In patience. Here we are informed that the particular graces which should characterize the fathers in God's family. First, be sober. Or as the margin preferably has it, be vigilant. They must not suffer increasing years to induce spiritual lethargy. Rather, should they issue an increased watchfulness and alertness to danger. Grave, not garrulous and excitable, but thoughtful and serious. Less allowance will be made for them than younger brethren if they indulge in levity and vanity. Temperance, or moderation in all things, the Greek word signifies self-restraining self-restraint, having their tempers and affections under control, sound in faith, sincere and steadfast in their profession, in love, to Christ and their brethren, and patience, not peevish and fretful, persevering in good things, merely enduring trials and persecution, meekly enduring trials and persecutions. Matthew, uh, and then uh, Matthew Henry, those who are full of years should be full of grace and goodness. That's Matthew Henry. Not only does the New Testament maintain a distinction between spiritual infants and mature Christians, but it reveals how God provides servants of his who are especially suited unto each. 1 Corinthians 4.15 For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet not many fathers, the fathers among the ministers of Christ are not only characterized by their disinterested, affectionate, faith, faithful, and prudent instructions, so that they are entitled to the love and respect shown unto a parent, but are divinely and experimentally fitted to open up the deep things of God and edify the older as well as the younger saints. Though all the true servants of Christ are commissioned by him, yet all are not equally qualified, gifted, or useful to the church. Many are instructors in Christ, but can go no further, being neither designed nor fitted for anything beyond that. But a few are greatly superior to them and have more lasting importance to the flock. All are useful in their several stations, but all are not useful in the same way. In concluding this aspect of our subject, we cannot go do better than call attention to the analogy between the spiritual growth of the children of God and that in the incarnate Son. Beautiful indeed it is to behold how this line of truth was exemplified in him. The humanity of Christ was perfectly natural in its ordinary development and everything was beautiful in its time. Ecclesiastes 3.1 in him. First, we see him as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and cradled in a manger. Then we behold his progress from infancy to childhood. And as a boy of 12, he, his moral perfection shone forth in being subject to his parents. And we are told that he increased in wisdom and stature and in the favor of God and man. Luke 2.51 and 52. When he became man, his glory found other expressions, working as the carpenter's bench, Mark 6.3, favored by his public ministry. Supremely was he, the tree planted by the rivers of water which brought forth his fruit in his season. And we're going to stop there because it's going to begin a new chapter. And uh, boy, that, that's a really, I really like that chapter a lot. It's stages. That's really good. Um, and it's humbling because, you know, we're, we're not, we're often not what we should be, especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our brother, Matthew Pink. We ask that you would put these things in our mind cause us to act upon them, cause us to put them in our heart and think about them and help us to be much more consistent 
to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him that we would be obedient to your holy law, that we would be faithful covenant keepers. In Jesus' name, amen.